most user interfaces that we interact with are not animated. We click on a button and a form blinks into view. We click on a link and the page abruptly changes. On the other hand, when we interact with an application that has animations, we can feel the difference. The animations are often subtle, and if you aren't sure what I'm talking about, you can pay attention the next time you use Slack or Facebook Messenger or iMessage. Airbnb values animations in their UIs so much that they built Lottie, a library for animation that we did a show about a while ago. In an animated application, the user interface feels alive. When a software team takes the time to build animations into small interactions, the user perceives the animations as polish and attention to detail. Sarah Drasner has been evangelizing the value of animations for years, and she's an expert at implementing complex and beautiful animations on the web. She works at Microsoft as a developer advocate and joins the show to talk about how to build animations. If you are building a web application and you want to create a unique UI, then you might find this show useful. JavaScript supports detailed animations, often through the manipulation of SVG files. SVG stands for Scalable Vector Graphics, a file format that represents an image in its own DOM. SVG is so flexible because of this DOM format, which defines the different parts of the SVG, just like your web page DOM defines all the different parts of a web page. We know how easy a web page is to interact with. This is in contrast to a bitmap, which is just a single matrix of dots without any rich metadata. So bitmaps are not very easy to manipulate programmatically. You could manipulate SVG with raw JavaScript, but most people use a front-end JavaScript framework like React, Angular, or Vue.js. Sarah has been implementing most of her recent web applications using Vue.js, and she's a member of the Vue core team. Vue actually has an entertaining story because it gained popularity in a time when Google was supporting AngularJS and Facebook was supporting ReactJS. And the first version of Vue was created from scratch by a single developer, Evan Yu. So it's been quite interesting to see the rise of this framework that was just made by a single guy. We actually did a show with Evan Yu a while ago, which you can look up in our archives. And if you're a Vue developer and you're looking for an open source project to hack on, you can check out softwaredaily.com, which is an open source platform that we're building to consume content about software. In addition to the Vue web app at softwaredaily.com, we also have the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android, and all of these apps are open sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. Thanks for listening, and let's get on with this episode. Sarah Drasner is the author of SVG Animations, a book from O'Reilly, and she's also a senior developer advocate at Microsoft. Sarah, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start with Vue.js. Vue is a front-end framework, and I've worked with it personally. We have it on the softwaredaily.com website. It's a front-end platform, and so I've, I've had first-hand experience with it. And we did a show with Evan Yu uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. And it's been really easy, interesting to see the rise in popularity of Vue, especially in a market with 
Angular and React, which were two pre-established, very popular front-end frameworks. What was it that Vue did differently to grow in popularity uh, in spite of the fact that there was Angular and React in the market? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. I, um, I personally haven't worked too much with Angular, but I worked pretty heavily with React for a while, and I still continue to. I, it's not for me. It's not a you know an either or. I, I think both are really pretty awesome. I'm on the Vue core team now, actually, and I think some of the things that made it really exciting for me when I was learning it was that it basically seemed to look over the entire landscape of all of the frameworks that came before it because Vue you know kind of came after and took all of the things that really worked well about these frameworks and then put them together in an elegant way. I mean, I think a lot of times when you end up taking the best pieces of a bunch of different disparate things, it ends up feeling very convoluted for the person working with it or using it. And that is not how it felt for me. It felt really, really like wonderfully easy to work with, very intuitive. I think a huge part of it, for me at least, and what part of the reason why I wanted to join the Vue Core team was that the documentation was so good. The guide and the API docs are just like super fantastic. Um, so I was really impressed with how well they communicated what was available to developers and you know got you going so easily. Hmm. Now, I remember Evan Yu's goal of Vue.js is building something that would allow for rapid prototyping. My sense is that the project has developed into something where people can use it beyond a rapid prototyping tool. They can use it for a complex project that scales. Has it evolved beyond that rapid prototyping vision? Is that still the mission? No, I think, you know, just like a lot of software that kind of like it comes out of needing a solution. I think even like React was born out of, you know, the the Facebook team having this like pesky notification bug that they couldn't get rid of that part of the reason why it was appearing was because the state issue that they were having. So I think, you know, all of these frameworks kind of develop out of this need for something, right? And then they kind of expand into like, obviously now React is not just for notification bugs. It's for like giant large scale applications. Same with Vue. It was born out of a certain need that Evan had that wasn't being fulfilled at the time and now is suitable for tons of large scale applications. There are giant applications, especially in Asia, like Alibaba and Weibo. Also, I know like Adobe and IBM and Microsoft are all like starting to do projects with that and adopting it. So it's starting to get that like, you know, giant adoption in the West as well for a good reason, because it's very easy to maintain. It's easy to scale in certain particular ways that I really appreciate, which is that if you are a maintainer on a project and part of like the way that I, I started working with Vue was I was a consultant and someone needed me to work on this Vue project. And personally, when I heard that, I was like, oh no, I got to learn another JavaScript framework. I just, you know, I just, I feel like I just got React and now I got to like go over to this other thing. And like, I, you know, I'm not proficient in this and I am proficient in React. And I, you know, I was, I kind of took the, the, contract with, you know, a bit of being tentative, but, you know, so some curiosity, because I'm just kind of a curious person. And I was really surprised at how easy it was for me to ramp up on what was going on, where everything was, it was super legible, and things were really, really clear and clearly organized. So I think it in terms of, you know, being able to scale an application that a lot of developers can easily, you know, jump into and add to and like understand where things are at or debug, 
that was for me just a huge thing that I was just like, oh my God, I think I'm like super excited about this thing that I used to, you know, not understand why I had to do. <laughs> what do you think of the story of Vue.js being able to gain so much traction? This is in in light of React, sponsored by Facebook, the multi-hundred billion dollar company, and Angular, which was sponsored by Google, the multi-hundred billion dollar company. And then Vue.js is just this one guy makes his own front-end framework, you know, supported by Patreon. <laughs> and I just think I can't get enough of that story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, like, it's not unprecedented in software development history that hmm. there be, you know, a project that's just kind of pioneered by somebody out of, you know, a, a need or, you know, like having the benevolent dictator kind of person that c- comes in and says, like, I think what we really need is something like this and building a whole community around it. And I think there's actually some stories of it being really successful. And I think this is one of them. What I really think is nice about it. And, you know, I don't want to make the distinction, you know, the, I don't want to say like things that are negative about React or Angular, because I think those are great projects too. I'm excited about them being peers. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I think when people talk about like framework wars, like I'm never super down with that because I think that, Vue stands on the shoulders of React in a lot of ways. I've also seen projects that came out of Vue that helped out React, like uh, React Transition Group Plus, which if we're t- we talk about animations later, we can dig into. Um, but like they learn from each other. I think that kind of competition between the frameworks and them learning from each other just stands to help us as developers. So, But in answer to your question, yeah, I think part of the reason that Vue is so successful in some ways, despite not having a giant corporate backing, certainly a giant corporate backing helps a project, but also not needing to shift priorities based on a corporate schedule that might be just specifically for that project is is really nice as well like a lot of Evan's decisions I feel like are really born out of his care for the framework again not saying that other places aren't but I've just seen a lot of things that he's decided that you know kind of came out of really really thinking about the future of this framework and how best it can suit the most wide amount of people so it's kind of lovely to see and it's lovely to see the community embrace it, especially because with stuff like open source culture, that's the dream, right? The dream is that like, you don't have to have a ton of money in order to create something that is just fantastic that people can appreciate. And so that part of like, you know, open source love in me is like, yeah, this is, this is like the best possible scenario when you have you know, a group of people that are just like passionate and they're just like, we're going to make this happen. And then the community goes on Open Collective and Patreon and supports it. And I think that that's really cool. You spend a lot of time working with animations and tinkering as well as building larger scale projects that have a large animated component. Has Vue become your tool of choice for doing that tinkering? Vue is particularly awesome at animations. And again, I'll, I'll say that I, I have limited experience with Angular, so I can't make any you know, statements there. But because Evan used to use frameworks for animation, I think he had some 
ideas and concepts about animation that were just really lovely. And some of them, like I, like I mentioned before, some of them actually have been ported back over to React. So one of, so here's like a small example of something that I really appreciate. In Vue, you have this thing called transition modes. It's very common that when you have a component that's exiting and another one is entering at the same time. So let's say you have like a list where somebody is like bringing something in and something else is fading out at the same time. Inevitably, you're going to get into a situation where both of those nodes are in the DOM at the same time. And what ends up happening is that you get this like moment of jank or like moment of like not jank, but like visual inconsistency where there's space for both of them and they snap out of place, even if they're transitioning and one of them doesn't seem like it's in the DOM and it is. So you get this like kind of clunky appearance. So what you end up having to do in normal kind of imperative world is you either, if you're doing stuff with CSS, you'd have to, you know, chain things based on delays. And that's very imperative and not very nice because if you change the length of the animation, you have to go back and find the the timing function for the animation duration. So you have to go change that length of time as well. So you could make them connected, but like that, you know, ends up being kind of clunky. Um, another thing that you can do is you could write a callback so that you're asking to, you know, when once this is done, can you go find this other thing and make sure that that starts. But transition modes end up allowing you to do this really declaratively. You can tell the component, as soon as that one's done, go bring this, that one in. And that's done with, with one single attribute. You just write mode out in, and that's it. That's all you have to do to make those components come in totally seamlessly. So that ends up being, you know, something that is like, as an animator or someone who, you know, talk focuses on animation, or just as a developer working on an application where I end up having to re-implement the same code to do the same thing over and over again, I don't have to write that code anymore. That's just something I can plug into and I never end. It's very, very common. So, you know, what ended up happening was a Vue developer who was used to working with transition modes, work uh, named Cheapstake, had, you know, kind of been gotten used to that and really appreciated that about Vue and then had to work on a project in React and was like, wait, why don't they have this? So he created React Transition Group Plus, which is basically like the uh, React Transition Group that we you know, are aware of and know, but actually has that transition mode in it. So this is like one of those examples of like Vue did do a really cool thing here in terms of animation that maybe other people hadn't thought about. But then the community learned from that and now it's all over the place. So that's really cool. The other one that I think is like super awesome in Vue is the transition group. Transition group component in Vue allows you to have animations that flip without doing any of the calculations for that. And if you're not familiar with flip, it uh, stands for first, last, inverse, play. And basically what it does is it allows you to use transforms on things that are moving around in the DOM. And the reason why that's important is that when you're using things like margin or top or left, um, it causes a lot of repaints for the browser. It's very taxing for the browser and you end up getting a jank appearance where things are kind of stuttering across the street, the screen. Transforms are the most performant way of moving those because they don't cause those triggers. They don't cause those repaints in the same way. Hmm. So you have this ability to hardware accelerate. And it's especially important when you have a lot of 
units to move around. So that tenant of first, last, inverse play, what you're doing is you're calculating the distances using like get bounding client rect in SVG terms, that would probably be get bbox. And you're finding the dis- the differences between where all of those things are in the screen. And then you're finding, you know, what those that what that translates to and transforms. So when you write that code yourself, and you have to do it a fair amount, it's not my favorite code to write. I mean, it's, you know, it's fine, but like it ends up being like a lot of like, okay, go get this, go do that. Really with Vue, you wrap things in that transition group component and you're offered some hooks with which to observe, you know, when it's moving and when things are entering and exiting and it becomes so easy and mm. to write all of that code, you don't have to, you know, write out exactly what's going on or anything. It just takes care of a lot of that stuff for you. So as an animator, yeah, those are like pretty big things, you know. <laughs> um, mm. These are, you know, this kind of limits the amount of this like s- the same logic that I have to keep writing again and again. I don't have to do that anymore and in- instead can just focus on what the animation is doing and how it lives and how it behaves. Let's take a step back to talk about animations more abstractly. The web is getting faster. Our devices are getting faster. Why don't we see more animations in the apps that we use? I think because, you know, I I deal with this a lot. I think it's because there's a couple, okay, there's a couple of different things. One is that when animation is done really well, it guides your user. And I think a lot of people have had experiences on native where they can see that happening and they know that they don't know exactly that it's animation, but they know that things are feeling very, they feel a little bit smoother. Every, you know, every kind of interaction feels a little bit more intuitive. When animation is done poorly, it draws a lot of attention to itself. So I would say that the best animation to me is animation that doesn't call itself out to being animation. When you're working with an interface, it's not like, hi, I'm animated. Um, It's something that, you know, just feels a little bit more slick and you, you know, feel like you're a little bit more in control. We're evolutionarily speaking, we are designed to notice something that's in motion, both to protect ourselves in case someone something is going to come eat us, or to go eat something if we are looking for prey. So if something is moving around the page that doesn't need to move around in the page, it can be really irritating. And I think everybody's seen this with like ads and stuff. So animation can get a bad rap. So people can experience something that is a a poor implementation of an animation and be like, oh, okay, animations shouldn't exist. But yet when we, you know, experience really, really good animations, and what I mean by this is if you go to, you know, something like an article like Paul Bacchus's Illusion of Speed, he talks about how a lot of short movements feel really long, but one continuous motion feels very short. So if you employ animation to kind of smooth out those changes and the interpolations of state, it becomes a much better experience. Another example I could use for this is like, you know, computers are used to Booleans. Computers are like on, off, on, off. So if something comes into our view, it could totally just say on and just be there. But humans aren't used, we're not evolutionarily designed to see that. If someone just appeared in your room before you without transitioning into your space, you'd be like, what the hell? (laughs) So I think that that's like a big part of you know, 
why animation ends up that good animation ends up feeling really good to us is because it actually allows you to keep track of oh this came from over there i understand spatially where that's coming from where that's going to and where it's going to go in the future if i need to go get it again so i think one of the reasons why it's not taken as seriously as it should be or is you know designed into things as much as it should be is because people see a bad impl- implementation of it and they are scared off of it forevermore hmm. instead of revisiting the fact that like that was a bad thing, not a good thing. <laughs> the other reason is I think that people are not aware, as aware of some of the tools that are out there that can help you. And so, you know, that's why working with you and I, I end up talking about Greensock Animation API a lot because I think it's really, really amazing. It's very declarative. It allows you to get a lot of a lot of work done very quickly and gives you a lot of power as an animator. If you pair things that are so amazing, like Vue and GSAP or Greensock, it ends up not being so hard to implement. People will often be like, oh, okay, well, I'll just like slap this on at the end or like, oh, it was too hard to implement. But if you use those those two tools, it, it gives you a lot of control that even something like native animation looks like and behaves like. So I think it's because people are somewhat not aware of the possibilities that are, are offered to them. Hmm. And I, I definitely try to put out resources to help people with that. An engineering team has to put work into getting their stuff animated if they want it animated. And we've already got teams that are doing design work and front-end engineering and back-end engineering. And it seems like another engineering resource to allocate if, if you want to get animations going. But we had a show recently with Airbnb about Lottie, and they see animation as so valuable that they're going to put significant engineering resources into it. So Airbnb is, is kind of extreme when it comes to how much they care about UX and design. But on the other hand, they're also, you know, they've done really well. So are they crazy or is there a significant ROI for the companies who are investing in the animation? No, I don't think they're crazy at all. I mean, I, I actually do think that it moves the needle. Um, you see that this in perceived performance of sites as well. So if you, I mean, think about if Apple or any of the Apple products that you use didn't no longer had any kind of animations or transitions mm-hmm. in that interface at all, it would be a completely different experience. And I don't think it would be, you know, it would have caught on the way that it does because some of those animations are for people to understand where things are coming, where things are going. And people talk about it in terms of delight, but I don't even think it's delight. I think it's actually giving people the spatial awareness they need to exist in, you know, an artificial environment. So if you're inviting someone to a virtual world, they do so with some trepidation. It's not what their brains are, you know, evolutionarily accustomed to. Animations ease that transition and make your interfaces a little bit more human and easier to work with. So some of that perceived performance is really, really important too. I know a lot of teams care about performance a lot and they should. Performance is huge. Performance moves the needles. You can see how much you know money Amazon makes or loses based on a hundred milliseconds of improvement. It's it's enormous. But some of this is perceived performance too, because humans overestimate passive wait times by something like thirty six percent, I think. So 
you know, what that means is that even if people, even if your console is telling you that something takes two seconds to load, it could feel to your user like it's taking a lot longer. So if you have something like a loading state or a, something that tells you that something has been submitted and you're, you're waiting or, you know, something to just ease you along that journey, it might take the perceived wait time down from three seconds to one second or less. And that's a really big thing. I mean, we do this in the real world too. If you look at like something like an airport, they actually make you walk all the way around to get to your baggage for baggage claim, even though you don't need to do that because they want you to feel like your bags just appeared, you know, instead of getting you right there. Um, That is, you know, a change in perception. That's a, a perceived wait time. So all of these things really make a difference and actually really move the needle. Some of them are kind of hard to measure, though. Some of them, you know, aren't exactly, you know, some some things are easy to measure in terms of like, how long people will wait on a page. I think, you know, I should in conference talks, I often show the study that Viget did, where they used a custom loader instead of the kind of normal one that everybody uses, that GIF, and they found that people were willing to wait twice as long for a custom loader. And the custom loader wasn't anything really crazy or anything. Like a custom loading wheel, like a a cat running around or something. It was just their logo with some dots on it. It wasn't, (laughs) you know, anything totally, you know, insane or anything. And people were willing to wait twice as long. But it wasn't the hourglass. It wasn't like the classic hourglass or the uh, spinning color wheel on Apple. Yeah, it was, it was, I think the one that they measured it against is just like those dots that are in a circle that you spin around. Oh, right. So, (laughs) so yeah, I mean, I guess I feel very strongly that it, it actually does change Mm. business concerns. Mm. Worthwhile. That said, let's dive in a little bit to how, animations actually work. You've written a book on this. I think the place to start is the SVG file format. This is scalable vector graphics. And there was a period of time where my little brother was obsessed with SVGs and I just I didn't really understand why. But then he showed me some stuff he had made with SVGs and I was like, well that's actually incredible. It's beautiful stuff that you've made and I think the file format is at the root of this. So let's say I have an SVG of a cat. It's an image of a cat. What does that file actually contain? Ah, yeah. So this is the coolest part about SVG. So when you're looking at a bitmap, we'll start with bitmaps first, uh, which people are more familiar with probably is JPEGs and PNGs. What they are is they're basically like a grid of like tiny little blocks of color, right? So if you get, if you blow them up to be bigger and blow them, you know, uh, like you know, twice twice as big, you're going to get a loss of resolution, which we call lossy. SVG doesn't ever become lossy because unlike those bitmaps, what you have is basically the equivalent of a piece of graph paper where you're plotting points and drawing lines between those points. And you can either fill those lines with color or you can use the stroke of those lines. So you're drawing with math, which makes it really, really amazing for things like charts and graphs. But it's also really good for images that you don't want to lose any resolution on. Like let's say a logo where on some pages you want to have, you know, a tiny one and some pages you want like a big splash graphic or something. You can blow it up to any size and it won't ever lose resolution. You're still sending the the same amount of information. So like, let's say, let's take the circle for instance. So if you imagine you have this big piece of graph paper, it's actually endless. We have a 
graph paper that's endless in every single direction. But in order to look inside of this piece of graph paper, we have a thing called the view box, which is basically like a little window that you're using to peer inside there. So then for those of you who are familiar with like the game Battleship, a lot of people know that game, you were saying things like C3, and then you would plot a point and you know that you could see if the other person was like hitting something or something. So if you were playing battleship with the SVG, you're basically plotting points along this piece of graph paper. You're saying, do this on the X axis and this on the Y axis, this on the X axis and this on the Y axis, and you make all sorts of shapes. So there's all these different elements and commands. If you look at a circle, basically all you're doing is saying CX, CY, and that makes, you know, a, a point on those two scales. So you're finding something on the x-axis, something on the y-axis, a point, and then you say radius. And that draws a, a full circle. So you, with three attributes, you now have a circle. And the other thing about that is that unlike a bitmap where like, let's say you had a picture of me and I'm just sitting here and I have like, you want to move my arm around. Well, in order to move my arm around, you'd have to go into something like Photoshop and like go find my arm and like cut a line around it. Then you'd have to replace the background that is no longer there. And then you'd have to absolutely position them on top of each other. That's kind of a nightmare. Um, in SVGs, all of those elements, like what I just described for circle, those just exist in the DOM, like regular DOM elements, like a P tag or like an H1 tag. So you can slap a class on it, you can slap an ID on it and move those individual pieces around. So if you had a hand with a bunch of fingers, you could say finger one, slap a class on that and, you know, just tell, you know, CSS or JavaScript to move it. And that's literally all you have to do to create these amazing animations with something that someone else has designed. Mm. So what does scalable mean in this context? SVG, scalable vector graphics. What does the term scalable mean? So scalable in those terms, because we're drawing with math, because you can kind of make things bigger or smaller without loss of resolution, that's what scalable is, that scalable is in the name. So it's particularly awesome for our day and age of responsive. So if you have something that needs to be like expand and collapse and work for all viewports, you don't need to do anything, actually. You can set it at a particular width and height, or you can take the width and height out of the SVG, and it will just expand whatever the container is. So you could use grid, you could use flexbox, you could let it expand to the entire width of the page. Really, the sky's the limit. So that means that you don't have to actually change anything for responsive. Plus, plus, this is where I get really excited. Um, <laughs> if you're moving things around inside of an SVG, inside of that coordinate system, inside of that graph paper, like let's say you're moving a circle backwards and forwards, it's using the coordinate system units to do so, not pixels. So that means that if you blow the, the SVG up or shrink it down, you don't actually have to use media queries or anything to change that animation. That animation is going to stay stable whether or not it's big or small. So you, you don't have to make any updates for responsive. Hmm. So that sounds like a very desirable set of attributes to have in an image file. But most of the images I engage with on the internet are JPEG or PNG, and these images don't seem to scale as well. What? Why is that? Why, don't, why aren't we using SVG all throughout the internet? 
because it's not, I, I would say that like there are cases for SVG and cases for not SVG. If you're trying to use a picture of a person, like let's say you have an about the team page, those images of people's faces, you could make them an SVG, but you'd probably end up having to do the same kind of work that a bitmap does anyway. So because you have to plot all those pixels. So it might not be worthwhile to switch things over to SVG. That said, I know some tools like JPEG to SVG converters that can actually reduce the file sizes of PNGs and JPEGs by turning them into SVGs because you can use things like clipping areas where you're not like coloring in all of those dots. So you actually, even for those files, if you change them into SVG, sometimes you could see you know, giant performance benefits. That said, I think that a lot of line art and things like icons and logos and stuff is typically what people use SVG for. Any kind of vector graphics, so anything that looks a little bit more like flat or things that are kind of drawn with a little bit more clarity rather than, you know, kind of fuzziness. Any kind of fuzziness or like really rough sketchiness is probably better suited for JPEGs and PNGs. That said, there are things like SVG filters and stuff that can create those effects. So that's part of the reason why some people don't choose to do uh, work with SVG. But I think some some of it is just a lack of education, to be honest. I think a lot of people reach for something like a PNG or a JPEG without realizing that they could completely lower the costs and reap huge performance benefits by switching some graphics to SVG. Why is that? Why is it that it's cheaper to operate with an SVG? Because it sounds like SVG is much richer. I mean, this is a file that has its entire, it has its own DOM associated with it. It sounds like a much more expensive file format. Why is it actually cheaper? Because it actually doesn't take that much code to run it. So if you think about like, okay, if I was going to draw like, you know, a smile for uh, in a bitmap and a smile in, you know, SVG. In SVG, I have a circle, I have another circle, and I have a path. And that's three lines of code with, you know, very, very few attributes. In a bitmap, I'm plotting every single one of those pieces of the grid. Mm. So I have to use so many more you know, just to be super basic, so many more ones and zeros to get that across, you know, just like, I have so much more code to get to express that. So this is not to say that every SVG is going to be more performant than every PNG or JPEG. Well, it's so, just so you're that, saying you're saying SVG defi- basically defines, here are a set of functions that draw shapes that are going to render into an image together. In contrast, a bitmap is here's a giant matrix of of color, <laughs> like color and coordinates. That's exactly right. So in, that's, in, for that reason, JPEGs can be harder to manipulate. If you use something like Canvas, actually Canvas opens up a lot of possibilities. So like for, you know, kind of bitmap alterations and things, but you still run into the same problem with responsive. SVG is able to, in a smaller set of commands, draw things. It's built to draw things. That's literally its job. So what I don't want to make it sound like is that you can just draw anything and it's cheaper. If you, you know, just like anything else, if you transfer a lot of data, it costs more. So if you have an SVG that has like a million bajillion things in it and a million bajillion path points, that's going to be expensive. So really thinking about it in terms of what the computer is delivering 
is really helpful. But most of the time, if you optimize an SVG properly, it's probably going to be cheaper than PNGs and JPEGs. And if you're curious on how to optimize SVGs properly, I wrote an article called High Performance SVGs for CSS Tricks. That article goes through all of the ways that you would output something and all of the ways that you can optimize something. I was pulled onto a project as a consultant where the load time for the site was 10 seconds long. And just by properly optimizing their images, I brought it down to under two seconds. So, you know, images are a huge way to reap benefit performance benefits. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you said images are two thirds of the bandwidth of the web, and I think yeah. that was, that was one of your talks. But how, why, why is it that poor image management leads to poor web performance? Because images are huge. If you think about, if you think about how much, like you know, you, those giant hero images that people have when you visit their site, and it's like covering the whole thing, and then you go down the page, and there's a bunch of a bunch of images, like a bunch of pictures of things and stuff. So. First of all, that's a lot of HTTP requests. Second of all, those images are a lot of, you know, that's a lot of data to transfer, those giant images. So by thinking about images in like a kind of more responsible manner, you can bring down the size of your site by a lot. It's really difficult to write like by hand that much JavaScript and CSS as just like even, you know, a giant image can create. I think somebody said, I forget who where the quote was from, but the the really great quote was, it's impossible to be a performance expert without also being an images expert. And I think hmm. that that is really true. Hmm. Getting back to the JavaScript libraries discussion, how does JavaScript interact with an SVG? What's the support there? Oh, it's great. Not really any issues, actually. SVG, despite maybe some people's prior thinking i think sv like 5 years ago svg wasn't really well supported now it's fully supported we have opera mini it's supported back to ie8 it's very well supported and javascript works really really well with svgs mm. in fact i think people often think that i'm using css for svgs i'm almost never using css mm. with svg i'm pretty much always using javascript so let's say i'm somebody who's i'm pretty good at vue or React, well, let's just say Vue, and I'm, you know, I'm a good coder, and I've decided, you know, I kind of want to become a little bit, a bit better at visual design, and I want to integrate some animated elements into my personal web page that's all built in Vue, and so I want to, I want, first, I want to build some SVGs myself. I want to go into some sort of visual editing tool and make these SVGs, and then I want to animate them, and I want to have these animations on my web page. What am I going to need to do? What kind of software do I need? What procedures do I do to make this SVG art and then animate it? Oh, actually, you don't need much. If you want to go on, like, freepick.com or, you know, the Noun Project or whatever and go grab a free SVG, then you just take that SVG you dump it in line into your page. So if you were using Vue, you could put it in a component or something. Then you, you know, in order to animate it, you do the you can use the same directives on all of the SVG elements. You can attach a class or you know to it if you're using regular or IDE, if you're using, you know, vanilla JavaScript, if you're using Vue, you would attach a ref and you can just you know, animate that with methods. If you're going to have a, you know, transition that's like based on an entrance and exit, you can still use the transition component in view. 
and you know plug into all of those things those javascript hooks that are available to you so before enter enter before leave leave all of those are st- will still work and be awesome and i typically use greensock for my animation needs but there's tons that you can choose from um, and they all re- work really well anime.js is a really great one mo.js is a su- super favorite of mine because you can spin up svg elements inside just using the you know mo.js itself you don't have to even have a graphic you can just spin them up with javascript so I actually think that JavaScript and especially Vue and SVG are just like amazing friends mm-hmm. <laughs> that people don't plug into as much as they maybe should even, especially because if you're not into, like, if you have trouble positioning things in CSS, sometimes SVG is really the answer. Like, I, just this last weekend, I was working on a project where I had a file loader and I had this plus sign in order for people to, like, you know, pick out the file from their, you know, it was like an input type file kind of situation where they're gathering information from their own computer. So I had this, you know, plus unit in CSS, but I had to be for accessibility reasons, I had to make the plus and the, you know, the ta- the like P element be on the same line. So I had to use some Flexbox and it totally destroyed this plus thing. Like the plus was there and then it used to be a circle and then it was all of a sudden a scrunchy oval and it was just like a nightmare. And no matter what I did with like width and height, it was kind of getting all squishy. So if I switch that to SVG, which I did, which is just like writing that circle I told you about, writing a line and another line, it's all of a sudden totally stable. So if you are you know, messing around, even with text, like if you want to do a text lockup that's responsive, that you know, works across browsers, throwing it in an SVG and never having to work it with, like, worry about it again is pretty awesome. Mm. <laughs> so it can kind of solve all of your positioning woes in some ways. What about if I wanted to do something more elaborate? Like if I really wanted to make my own images and animate them, I want to, for example, make a mailbox, like a, a physical mailbox picture, and then I want to have a mailman walk up to the mailbox and put an envelope inside the mailbox. And I want to make all of these elements from scratch, and then I want to animate them in the browser. What if I want to do something like that? Like, how, how would I do that? What program would I use to create that art? And then how do I bring that into the browser and animate it? Okay, so yeah, I typically use Illustrator. I also am, you know, like I've been working with these like graphic software for a long time. So I know like the cool kids use Sketch and stuff. I found Sketch's output settings for SVG to be less than optimal. So I, and the person who works on the output settings for Illustrator for SVGs is Dmitry Baranovsky, who wrote Snap SVG and Raphael back in the day. So he is really smart about SVGs and did a pretty great job with the Illustrator output output settings. So I would say if you want to spare yourself a headache, you might want to use Illustrator, but I understand if you like want to work with Sketch like a lot of people do. Inkscape is another great one. It's free. So the other two are paid for and Inkscape is not. So if you don't want to pay for graphics equipment, then that might be the solution for you. I haven't worked with that much because I just have the subscription to Illustrator. Hmm. So I usually work with it in Illustrator. What I'll do is, you know, just draw a few things and then, or like bring in, you know, some other art and alter it and change it until it's what I need. And then 
I make sure that I'm labeling all my paths. So like if there's an arm, I group them together and call them arm. If it's, there's a head and I need to move it, I group everything together and call it head. That really reduces the amount of time that you're spending looking in the DOM and trying to find out where everything is and stuff like that. And those groups will be outputted in code. They'll be called G. So you can go find them and use them. So if you label everything properly, then you'll say, you won't say save as in Illustrator, you'll say export as. And when you say export as, you say SVG, it'll give you a few options and, you know, save it off. Then I go into this thing called SVG OMG by Jake Archibald. It's an SVG optimizer. And that will allow me to change a few things. And again, if you want to know more information on how to set all of this stuff up, or like I'm speaking too fast, go to that high performance SVG post that I mentioned earlier, because it details all this stuff Mm. and goes into a lot of detail about all the settings. Mm. Then after I've optimized it, I bring it into, you know, directly in line in the HTML or into the component itself in view, and then uh, do everything I said for the last question. Right. (laughs) Makes sense. Do people use SVGs for 3D models? No, SVG doesn't have 3D capabilities. Okay. I've seen these these renderings you have you know, on CodePen where it looks like a three-dimensional situation. What are you doing with those? Uh, I'm using 3.js, so that's not SVG. Ah, got it. Okay, cool. Uh, well, what's... So those are, those are done like with a, what 3.js is a, a way of working with WebGL. Oh, right. Okay, so I, I think I talked to somebody about React, React VR, and they talked about yeah. 3.js. Yeah, pretty sweet. It takes a little bit longer to get ramped up on three than it will for SVG for the listeners. Mm. But it's also really cool. It's really fun. What's your prediction for how this th- this 3D in the browser slash VR stuff is going to play out? I think I'm allowed to say this now because Josh Carpenter just did a talk on this. So now it's public information. But I had talked before working with Microsoft. I had talked with Google about a potential contract that I turned down because of Microsoft about how they're integrating web VR into the browser. So like the future would be that some of the primitives that you see in A-Frame. Do you know what A-Frame is? No. Okay, so there's a thing called A-Frame, which gives you three-dimensional primitives as HTML elements. So you'd say A-Entity Box, and then all of a sudden a box is made made for you, and you have attributes that puts it backwards and forwards in space and stuff. So this A-Frame thing is like, really pretty cool for like 3D and VR experiences that people can use without having a ton of, you know, like I mentioned, 3.js is a little bit more complicated to set up. This is not. (laughs) This is like really, really easy to set up. So the idea that, you know, kind of Google is is thinking about going, you know, going with is to create this kind of A-frame thing in the browser where these primitives are exposed to web developers and they basically are taking, rather than responsive being this thing that goes sideways from device to device, you know, like going small to large, it responsive all of a sudden means a third dimension, the Z index. So of it, like creating those primitives that are available in the browser so that if you don't have 3D capability on whatever device you're on, it's a flat experience. But if you have a VR headset, it becomes a three-dimensional experience. Hmm. All right, to wrap up, what changes do you think we're going to see on the web to support 
better animations. Uh, I mean, I, moving beyond the discussion of 3D, of course. Well, I mean, I think the 3D part is, is part of that. The, that change will be a change in animation, too. They're also making animation primitives, which is part of the reason they were talking to me. So that's going to be a big thing. I don't think that that's coming out like in a year or something. I think that that's the future, like a longer, longer look into the future. And, you know, if the human race survives. Um, <laughs> and I think in terms of animation, we have things coming out that are like web animation API, which I think is super awesome. It's not super well supported yet, but there's some really bright minds like Rachel Neighbors and stuff working on that, which, you know, and which allows the browser to extend those capabilities of everything that I was talking about in JavaScript, like in Greensock, it gives you some of that stuff natively, which will be super dope. So I think browsers are working on all of these things. I definitely see advancements in some of the rendering capabilities of every browser. I think Edge has made some real leaps and bounds from where Internet Explorer was in terms of rendering. And, you know, Chrome is constantly pushing the needle on this. So that's really exciting to see. All right, Sarah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, uh, I enjoy seeing your code pen animation tweets uh occasionally on twitter so it's, it's always always a nice little uh visual treat in the twitter feed thanks thanks yeah i have a lot of fun tweeting mine and other people's especially if you know people are making cool stuff out there so it's cool thanks for having me on i really appreciated uh you taking time out of your day to talk to me today absolutely wow 